Edge. A three. Good! You can't be serious with that shot. Thomas, shake, crossover, step back. It is the Thursday morning before Final Four weekend, and we are happy that you have joined us here on the Just College Hoops show. Tim Leonard, Brian McLaughlin back with you as we continue to get you ready for Final Four weekend. It's been sort of that downtime here in the tournament where we've had time to sort of collect our thoughts on what is still a very strange Final Four that is going to be upon us. But I think strange in a good way, right, Brian? I'm sort of just embracing the chaos at this point in the matchups that we're going to have here on Saturday. I think strange in the best way. No question about it. I mean, anytime if you would have told me there was a conference USA team and a mountain West team in our final four, I wouldn't have believed you, but that's where we've landed. And I think it's, it's a, a final four where you still have powerhouses. I, I think that you have the ACC in Miami in the sense that they can score the ball with anybody in the country. And they've just upset two of the uh, pre tournament favorites at yeah. Houston and Texas and then you have UConn, a team that's just rolled. And so we have a really diverse Final Four. You have lots of different storylines coming in with powerhouses, but also underdogs, which I think should make for a really fun couple of days and a really fun couple of games. Now, I was told the ACC is not a powerhouse, though, Brian. I was told that con- that conference has lost their fastball and there's no no good ACC teams anymore. Anyway, I'm joking. That's, that's Well, I, I think it's worth... Year. Maybe it's worth saying Conference USA. Are they the actual powerhouse? Right. <laughs> two NIT, two NIT finalists. You've got a Final Four team. I don't know. People are saying Conference USA, the new Big Twelve. Well, you know what's fascinating too. I didn't know this hand up until di- diving in more on Florida Atlantic, but they were picked to finish fifth in the Conference USA going into the season. So that just goes to speak to the job that Dusty May has done, and we'll get into more of the matchup specifically in just a second. We'll also probably wrap up talking about some of the coaching carousel and the transfer portal in college basketball, because that is hot and heavy as they say right now, but a couple notes on the final four. We we talked about on our last podcast, how this is probably right up there. If not the most weirdest final four that we've had in the game, but this is the first time since 1979 when the seeds in the final four did not feature a top three seed. And that 1979 is when seeds were introduced into the tournament. Three teams are playing in their first Final Four ever as a program, Miami, San Diego State, and FAU. FAU had not won a tournament game heading into this tournament. They're now in the Final Four. And I thought this was interesting from a player perspective. It is the first time since 2006 the Final Four features zero consensus first or second team All-Americans. I don't even know if there's really necessarily a surefire first round NBA draft pick in this final. I guess Jordan Hawkins from UConn comes to mind. He's a really good shooter. Outside of that, it's just a weird collection of players that are more made for the college game than the NBA game. Absolutely. I do think there are some guys on these teams that will play in the NBA, but they're not NBA prospects at all. Um, I I think of, I mean, Adama Sinogo is the headliner, of course, for UConn. 
probably the best player left yeah. overall is and definitely the most dominant thus far in the tournament. But I, I, I like John L. Davis from FAU. He's their leading scorer and is a player who shoots the ball well, pretty lanky, a good wing. Um, and I think you you look at the Miami guards, and I know it's an older group of guards, but when you can score at the rate that Isaiah Wong does and um, Nigel Pack, the way he can shoot the ball, making 84 threes this year, I, I think there's guys that will be – you're going to look at them in a few years and they're going to be hanging around in the NBA and it's going to be a fun trivia question of where did John L. Davis? Oh yeah. He yeah, was on that right. FAU team that made the final four. I think you do have a couple of those guys that are left in this, but it is weird to think about, but we talked last week about how there's no blue bloods left, but it is weird that there's a bit of a vacuum of star power too. You don't really have any of those big names, whether it's on the sidelines with coaches or on the court, as far as actual players, there are a lot of, casual fans who are just learning the names of the guys on these teams. There's no Zion Williamson's certainly in the really in college basketball at all this year, but even the big names of the star powers in the sport, like you said, no all Americans, they're not in this final four, which is again, might hurt that TV viewership. Like we talked about, but I'm excited for people to learn all these really unique stories and learn about some new guys. Yeah, you think about on the women's side of things, the headline matchup is going to be South Carolina against Caitlin Clark, right? It's How not cool even like that? South Carolina. That's that's going to be the headline matchup that they're going to sell, and I think the TV ratings are going to be great because that is a dream scenario of the undefeated team going against the quote-unquote best player in the game, and she's such a fun player to watch. There's not really a superstar carrying any of these four teams. I guess Sonogo... But UConn, to me, is such a deep team. They're so right. uh, a some-of-their-parts type of group. And FAU is probably the best example of that. So it's just fascinating. I think if Marquise Noel was in the Final Four, that would have been a guy that the collective fan base, the casual college basketball fans would have been rallying around. It just worked out that way this year. I feel like there's usually that one guy. Now, also in your head, when you're thinking about the guys that go on runs, of course, Kemba Walker stands out. He did take them to the national championship game and they won it. But there's a lot of examples of guys that won the tournament like Marquise Noel, and then they don't make it to the final four. Steph Curry, Jimmer Ferdad at the mid-major level right. are just a couple that come to mind. And I do think that memories are created in the final four, right? Like I think whoever wins Miami and UConn, I, I think are going to have to have a moment, right? When, yeah. when you look at that matchup, to me, I'm not, I, I don't want to say that that's the national championship game, but to me, those are pretty clearly the two best teams left. And I just think that they are at their best two teams that are better than what San Diego state and FAU are. Now, maybe whoever wins UConn and Miami, they don't show up Monday night in the championship game. And you could absolutely see a scenario where San Diego state's defense just finally gets the best of a Miami team or is able to shut down and deal with, the size and athleticism of UConn, there is that scenario, right? But I do think the if I had to guess right now, the national champion definitely comes from the Miami-UConn game. And yeah. that matchup is the pretty clear headliner matchup. And, and FAU-San Diego State is going to be a fantastic game. But just as far as storylines coming in, it's a bit more of the, the appetizer for the main course of Miami-UConn, the way I look at it at least from the way it's going to be advertised. But I do think that there's going to be a lot to break down in FAU San Diego State as far as the matchup is concerned just because of the unique styles they both play. 
But to me, there are going to be a lot more eyeballs just because of the name brands associated with Miami and UConn. For sure. I do think that there's a, and this isn't breaking news or anything because the spread says this, but there's a better chance of FAU San Diego State having a buzzer beater or being a close game and kind of keeping our attention late in the game. To me, and I look at UConn right now, I have a lot of respect for Miami. And we can sort of dive into this Miami-UConn matchup first. I have a ton of respect for Jim Laranega, what he's done. He's trying to become the oldest coach ever to win a national championship at 73. And he's also sort of shot down any notion that this would be it for him. He seems to think that he's going to keep going for his grandkids and everything. And he's sort of buying into the uh, favorite grandpa in the world narrative that (laughs) has been going around. So... I love Miami. I want to pick them because I am an ACC guy at my core. UConn has just been too good, I think, to pick against. And also Miami's defense, and we talked about how they were the worst defensive team in Ken Palm history. So going back to the early 2000s to ever make the Final Four, it's hard for me to just keep assuming that Miami is going to get by without having really much on that end of the court. They entered the tournament 132 on Ken Palm's defensive efficiency ranking that has gotten up to 104 going into this matchup, but UConn's just such a complete team. And the more I look at this final four, it's such an easy storyline and maybe it won't happen because of that. I'm not saying that if you play it 10 times, UConn wins all 10 times, but I do think they probably win it seven or eight times. And that's why I'd be picking them to win it all from this point on. I think so. I think that's very fair. It is fascinating when you when you talk about Miami and how they what they're going to bring to this game, because last week you and I talked about it. They don't defend, but they can really score. And they just took down two top defenses already in Houston and Texas. Yeah. Now, what helped them out in those games was that Houston and Texas both went on really long droughts. They, they went on stretches where they couldn't keep up offensively. And Miami's offense was able to keep their foot fully on the throttle. The total in this game right now, Tim, according to Vegas, is set at 149 and a half. And I'm not sure that's even enough. I I lean even over that number because one of these two teams is, to me, definitely going to get to the 80-point marker. And then I think whoever is eventually losing this game is going to make some shots because while UConn is really balanced, they're a strong defensive team. I don't think they're the defense, though, that Houston was. And Miami was able to take advantage of Houston and and still find ways to score with their guards and space the floor enough with enough shooting to really drive and get inside the defense. I expect a lot of the way UConn defends, they're up in your grill, right? That's how they want to try to defend. If Miami can just stay composed, they're going to find a way to get behind that defense with their dribble drives. And the way they just scored around the rim against Texas and UConn has some decent rim protection, but I still think that Miami's going to find a way to score inside, Tim. I don't think this is going to be a blowout, the way UConn has just blown the doors off of everyone they've seen so far. I think Miami's offense at least keeps them in this game, and if they're able to get some big shots to fall, I'm not ruling out the Canes. Yeah, It's hard for me to imagine a world where Miami just goes out with a whimper. But I couldn't really imagine that with Arkansas. I couldn't really imagine that with Gonzaga and look what UConn did to them. So I'm just not, I'm not sure that everyone is considering how much better UConn is than some of these other teams. And I think when you get down to the final four, it becomes, okay, it's just two games and anything can happen and all those narratives. And now 
Miami does have time to prepare for UConn a little bit here in this breathing space, but Arkansas had kind of the same timetable, maybe a little bit less, and they struggled in that game. On the over, I do agree with you when you look at the two teams, that 149.5 feels low to me. I just struggled to get there with overs in the final four because I feel like the pressure is in the first 10 minutes. We've seen it so many times in these games where guys are shooting threes, they're shooting long jump shots. They're just out of rhythm in the offense. And then the sight lines, I think is a real thing at some of these bigger stadiums where, you know, you're just not used to shooting an environment where there's whatever, 60,000 people. I don't know what the number is going to be, but it's going to be more than any other. Maybe that's too high. I, I can't even remember what, NRG stadium holds, but it's going to be such a different atmosphere than these guys have played in. So that's something to keep in mind. I will say UConn, speaking of spreads and Vegas stuff, they are 15 and zero against the spread this year against non-conference opponents, wow. which factors in that they started the year really hot. Remember, then they had that lull in January when they were in conference. So you keep that in mind. To me, when I look at UConn, I think, is only about 120, minus 120, minus 125 to win it all. I did think personally that number was going to be higher. I think it's sort of a trap line because you look at that and you're like, wow, how could we not take UConn to win it all at that number? And and I'm sure a lot of betters that are Joe betters, quote unquote, are going to do that and fall into the trap. And maybe I'll be one of them. But I do think that line is pretty favorable for UConn. I expected it to be more like minus 150 for them to win it all. I do wonder, just because it's been the nature of this tournament, if we need to be careful getting out over our skis about UConn. To me, yeah. if we, we need no, to just I, walk I that, that line. Because it's the way this tournament has gone, it, the top dog has not been the top dog for long. And that's just the way this season has unfolded. And so that's that's why it is easy to say, okay, rank these four teams one through four. UConn slots and immediately is the best team left, right? And that's pretty, I think, clear. But the way that Miami has taken down tough teams so far and the way Jim Laranega has been able to scheme his offense to figure out opponents' weaknesses, it was getting the ball inside against Texas. And his guards then were able – they only took eight threes against Texas, even though throughout the year Miami did shoot a lot of threes. And so they have been a very patient team in the way they've played offense. And – UConn's going to score the ball. They're too good a passing team. They have too many options shooting the ball. Sonogo's going to get offensive rebounds and second chances. I- I've I've come to terms with that. UConn's going to score. To me, this game is going to come down to what can Miami generate? Can they keep this offense going where they're scoring almost 1.2 points per possession in the tournament right now, which is a ridiculous rate. Um, and so if they can keep that up, I like their guards late in the game against the UConn guards. Yeah, and that, that to me is if this is a close game, the way UConn is dominated kind of goes out the window. And I like that Miami has won some close games in the tournament. I like that they've been there. UConn has not had to sweat late in the second half yet since March Madness started. I do, I do like that. It's almost like Miami's a bit of a boxer that's been bloodied before. They've taken that punch. I would like to see UConn take a punch. Like somebody, somebody throw a haymaker on the Huskies. We need to see something land on them, and I need to see how they respond. And that is the exact case for why Miami could win this game. I totally agree with you there. If the game gets close, if it gets into crunch time, a lot of college basketball games come down to how many shot creators do you have? What do you have at the guard position? 
Miami has tons at the guard position, which we have seen throughout this tournament. And it hasn't always been Isaiah Wong is the guy. It hasn't always been Nigel Pack. It hasn't always been Miller. It's it's amazing how that if one guy is down, the other guys kind of step up. Or, you know, if two guys are down and Nigel Pack needs to come through, he'll come through. They're a great team yeah. in that way. And they've been playing together and, and been in a lot of close games this season and been successful. UConn, on the other hand, that is their Achilles heel. And the thing that sort of holds them back to me from being what would be classified as like an all-time no-brainer, they are way better than the rest of these teams in the Final Four. Their guard play, they have, you know, Andre Jackson is kind of their quote-unquote point guard. Not a traditional point guard because he can't really shoot, but he's such a good distributor. He's a great defender at the top. It's just not traditional final four guards that win you games with big plays down the stretch. It hasn't necessarily been tested because they're such a tough team to game plan for. They have so many different wrinkles they can throw at you. Dan Hurley's done a great job and they've gotten the ball to Sunogo. And that's where I think probably the biggest X factor in this game is actually not a Miami guard. It's Norchad O'Meara going against the post players of UConn. Because to me, he is an underrated big. But he's also still an underrated big who is six seven. There are limitations there. He probably hasn't seen a physical big quite like Sinogo in this tournament throughout the season, really. I think he's up for the challenge. But if he does get in foul trouble, Miami really has no other alternatives there. So if you're yeah. UConn and if you're Danny Hurley, the game plan is probably to try and expose him early, get him into foul trouble, Omir, the Miami big. And if that's the case, I do think there's a world where UConn blows out Miami because that's just what they've done in the tournament. And actually, I kind of lean towards if you think UConn's going to win the game, I'm not that worried about the spread and the number, which is right around six or five and a half, because I feel like they'll probably win this game by 10 to 12 points. If it's a close game, I might even lie bet Miami because it feels like Miami is actually the team that's better equipped for the last three or four minutes of the game. And they have a coach that's, they really, obviously UConn believes in Dan Hurley too, right? But there is something about the the way Laranaga has been able to, to get his guys in the right spots throughout this recent run of really good play. There was multiple moments in that game against Texas where things could have spiraled, right? There was when, when Omir almost fouled out, initially was called for his fifth foul, and then that was waved off things could have really unraveled, but UConn respond or Miami responded. Omir stays in the game. They end up going on the next run. They were able to just prevent those big runs happening against them. To me, that's the story entering this game. If UConn comes out and lands that first blow, goes on an early six, seven, eight, nothing run, then look out. It, It might be blowout time. And that would be very unfortunate. I just have a hard time seeing Laranega getting out game planned early on. Yeah, I, I think that he'll he'll have something ready for the the mismatch potentially in the post. I would expect maybe some early double teams if they do try to go to Sonogo on back to the basket plays along the block. But then for for the UConn standpoint, who does Hurley go with it guard? Does he go with his more attacking minded guards? The the freshman AK, uh, Alex Caravan, who can really shoot it on the offensive end. But he's a guy that if Nigel Paxi's in front of him, it's blow by time. You've yeah. got a couple of those guys on UConn who are more offensive minded and they're not bad defenders, but then they have some guys that they can bring off the bench that are much more solid defensively. 
but are not going to exploit the likes of Pack and Wong on the defensive end. And so it's going to be really interesting to me how Hurley tries to mix and match with his guards. Because for the most part in crunch time, you know what five are going to be out there for Miami barring foul, foul yeah. trouble. They're going to play their starting five. It's one of the most efficient starting fives, one of the most efficient five-man lineups in the country, according to Evan Maya. UConn's lineup is going to be a bit more fascinating. And again, it, we haven't seen them in a close game. So we don't know who Hurley's going to trust down the down in crunch time when he needs a bucket or a stop. It's going to be fascinating for me to watch how he plays his bench when or if it is a close game. Yeah, and I think what's pushing me over the edge again, and I'll go on the record and we can get your pick in just a second. UConn minus five and a half right now. I think I, I would take UConn at that number, like I've sort of hinted at. What's pushing me over the edge is Miami's defense. I just don't think is quite good enough to win a national title, to win a big game like this. I think they have already sort of proven me wrong by winning some of these big games to this point and doing it through offense. But how much can you do that is sort of my question. And you talk about how UConn has one-dimensional players at the guard position. A lot of Miami's guards are one-dimensional. Like Nigel sure. Pack, when you get him on the perimeter – I think some of these UConn guards that aren't quote unquote great shot creators are going to be able to probably get by him and make plays on offense. So that helps UConn a little bit too. When you talk about the crunch time situation, they can isolate a matchup on Nigel Pack. They can sort of try to go to plays down low and, and hopefully Omir is kind of the only option there that can sort of slow down. I think Sonogo, but you know, Sonogo's gone against some really good pigs this tournament and all throughout the season. He's been just dominant. So I it's just hard to pick against UConn at this point. I don't know. Where, where do you lean on on the spread and, and where do you see this game shaking out? Well, I think if you're looking for value, I, I do think Miami Moneyline is worth a sniff. Um, mm -hmm. that, that would be where I would say if you're looking for that value play, because I do think if they're if they can keep this thing close, I don't see Miami losing by five or less. I see them either losing by eight to 12 or winning the game. That's kind right. of where I land. So I and think I'm in the same boat. Yeah. UConn spread to me is the safer of the two spreads for sure. Um, and if you're going to side with Miami, take the money line would be where I would recommend going. Um, I'm going to be rooting for Miami. Nothing against you. Yeah, I probably will be too. Honestly, I'm rooting <laughs> for, uh, I'm rooting for a five, five, national championship that, that'd be super sick um or if i i mean a five nine would be really cool too um for obvious reasons but yeah i'm rooting for miami but i i do have a hard time picking against the dominance of uconn and i do just keep coming back to brian they're just the best team left they've got the best players left and that was kind of my what i tried to do coming into this tournament and it didn't work out and like we've talked about, Tim, I've been as cold as it gets. Like I haven't yeah. gotten a pick right, it seems like, in months now. So I, I'm going to pick UConn, but maybe that means you should maybe think about going with Miami. Yeah, it's interesting you say Miami-San Diego State would be kind of your dream. Miami-FAU would be really cool that, for yeah. the South Florida matchup. No, And question I think from a ratings it. perspective, that's a, almost a nightmare because at least FAU is more Cinderella than San Diego State, so the nation might start buying in on them a little bit more. But let's get into this FAU-San Diego State matchup. Currently, the line is San Diego State minus two. I think the biggest matchup in this game is if San Diego State's three-point defense, which we've talked about a lot in this podcast, it's sensational. It's number two in the country, according to Ken Palm. 
And in the tournament, teams are shooting 17.5% from three-point range against San Diego State. Creighton went two for 17. Alabama went three for 27, which is staggering. That's 11%. And they shut down Brandon Miller, who had a really bad tournament. We know all about that. Charleston, even a solid three-point shooting team, was five for 24. And Furman was six for 26 in the early stages. There's two minds of thinking here because there isn't a sort of case to be made that three-point defense is a lot of luck and teams just aren't making shots. And now we get to the final four and, you know, there were 28% on the regular season. It's dropped to 17.5% here in the tournament through four games. Is that sustainable? Can they actually hold Florida Atlantic who is, you know, 25th in the nation in terms of percentage of points they are getting from the three-point line, according to Ken Palm. They're 44th in the nation in three-point shooting percentage as a team at 37%. That's the storyline to me. If FAU can hit perimeter shots, if you buy into the notion that San Diego State's three-point defense, quote-unquote, luck is going to run out, then I think Florida Atlantic is the pick here. As far as picking this game goes, my initial reaction is San Diego State, um, and it's because of that defense. And you're right, Tim. Three-point defense, there's a lot of variance there. There's a lot of potential luck involved, especially over the course of a regular season. But watching them defend and the way they just get in people's grills, it is uncomfortable. Like, it's – I've got the, like – I'm uncomfortable just watching them defend. It's very Tennessee-like, right? I mean, they're just so physical, and that worked for Tennessee. I feel like I'm about to turn the ball over, and I'm sitting on my couch (laughs) watching them defend. That's that's the way that they can just get their hands on the ball, make you feel off balance, make you feel out of rhythm. FAU runs a really fun style of offense. It's four out, one in, ball screen motion, lots of movement on the perimeter, all centered around the big Russian golden inside, who is – kind of having a breakout. He had a really big Elite Eight game, and so it's going to be fascinating to see how he handles the San Diego State pressure and the defense that they employ. If if FAU gets out of rhythm offensively, I think that's just going to feed into San Diego State and the way they want to play. If FAU starts making some early shots, though, I don't like San Diego State to make shots to stay in the game. That They are yeah. not a team that are – they're kind of the polar opposite to Miami. They're not going to make shots to stay in the game. They're going to stay in the game because of their defense. Will they make shots? Yes. Matt Bradley's a good scorer, averages 12 a game, but he's the only one on San Diego State that averages over 10 points. And he's been a little inconsistent even in this tournament for the type of player that he is. They are just a very balanced team for sure, which does help you and hurt you in some ways, depending on how you look at it. I agree. I think I'm leaning Florida Atlantic in this game. Uh, I was a little surprised. I thought it would almost just be a pick And I say that because I think FAU talent-wise, matches up pretty much right there with San Diego State. I mean, they out-rebounded Kansas State 44-22 to in the last game, so they have enough dudes, quote-unquote, and it does feel like FAU is just a little bit more of a well-rounded team. I think I've just watched San Diego State go through stretches this season where they literally can't score the basketball, and that's rubbed me the wrong way because you hit on a great point there. If FAU gets up early, I don't know how San Diego state really gets back into this game and their offense just scares me. I think that's it at the end of the day, they're fourth in Ken Palm D they're 74th and offense in Ken Palm. So I can hear people listening saying, well, you're scared of Miami because of their defense. Now you're scared of San Diego state because of their offense. 
I do think Florida Atlantic and UConn are just more well-rounded teams. And that's a little bit more trustworthy in the tournament when you get to this stage of games. It would be quite a story though, because I don't think, I think I saw the stat early this week. I might have to fact check myself on air here, but Florida Atlantic would be the highest seed ever to make the championship game. I believe as a nine seed, we've seen a lot of eight seeds do it. So I, or at least it would tie it. I think, I don't think any 10 seed or higher has ever made the championship game. So it would be an unbelievable Cinderella story in a way, but it also wouldn't be because they win their 36 game of the season. And how many schools have ever won 36 games in a season is probably very little. That's, that's kind of the thing with FAU, right? It kind of comes back to, they just keep winning. Like Mm -hmm. why they just keep winning games. And I do like that about them a lot. Cause even when you're like, you're breaking down any article you can find on them, right. You're going deep on their Ken Palm pages, their Evan Myers, Bart Horvick pages, trying to just figure them out. But it it comes down to the, I think they're, it's kind of that term of like that the sum of their parts is really greater than all of their individuals. Cause they don't have any of those, star players although I, I do think john l davis is a really good piece and somebody who could help an nba team but it, it's a group of players that have exactly what their roles are figured out they know exactly what they need to do every play they're very well prepared they're going to execute their offense even against a san diego state team that disrupts offensive execution maybe better than anyone else in the country To me, what FAU needs to do in this game, if they want to win, is defensive rebounding. Because that's where San Diego State can stay in the game offensively, is getting after the glass. That's how they beat Creighton. 13 offensive rebounds against a Creighton team that have loads of size and were one of the dominant rebounding forces in the country. So I think it's a San Diego State team that is going to just go after the glass. It's going to be a game where they just try to dominate on the boards um, and dominate defensively and worry a little bit less about generating really high quality looks. They're going to shoot a lot of mid-range jumpers. They're going to miss wildly off the backboard sometimes. <laughs> it They're going to have sometimes. the yeah. over-under is about three and a half air balls for them. <laughs> they're going to miss badly, but they're also going to send bodies flying on the glass. And I just think that the defense and rebounding combination I, – I like San Diego State, Tim. That's That's kind of where I fall on it. I just like that combination of – traits that they bring forward and I would love to pick FAU and I just I keep going back to the way San Diego State gets people out of their comfort zones I don't think FAU while they've beaten some good defenses in this most recent run I don't think they've had to handle anything quite like uh, quite like San Diego State yeah I think that's the case San Diego State if they get the right whistle could just sort of out physical another team and and waltz to the final four on a 60 to 47 final score or something maybe even less than that because that's kind of the game they need i do think the fact that florida atlantic is very malleable and you talked about this on the last podcast they've won in different ways against different teams that is a trait that i like so i'm leaning florida atlantic you're leaning san diego state i think you're a little higher on miami but we're both saying probably uconn will get past in that game before we get out of here and we'll probably reconvene and maybe do a preview podcast for the national championship game, which will be fascinating to see how right or wrong we were on these first two games in the final four. Let's talk a little bit about the coaching carousel and the transfer portal, just other news in college basketball. Any big coaching news that stood out to you in particular? I know you're a Penn State guy, so Mike Rhodes being wrapped up for seven years was the hire for them. 
the whole Penn State situation for sure was something I followed very closely. Of course, was really hoping Micah Shrewsbury would stay. I think he's a phenomenal coach, just a creative offensive mind um, that people in Notre Dame are going to really love. Get why I went back to Notre Dame. That's He's from Indianapolis, an Indiana guy. Mike Rose, I think, is a fine hire for Penn State. Safe, um, not splashy. He's going to come in and be honestly very similar in my mind to Pat Chambers. He's going to preach defense. He's going to preach toughness. And Penn State's going to be a middle-of-the-pack team in the Big Ten at, at their best. This year is Penn State basketball at its peak, Tim. They're just never going to get enough fan support. They're always going to be little brother to the football program in town, unfortunately. And honestly, little brother to wrestling during the winter. That's yeah. just the way it goes in State College. You're, third, you're the third favorite child, really, is the way that it – that's just how it goes. So they're going to be fine. Mike Rhodes, I think, is a great coach as far as he's going to get his – Best out of his players. I think it's a fine hire. I'm not overjoyed by it. I'm not yeah. upset about it. I don't have very many strong feelings. I don't think you're able to get a big name guy at Penn State. There no. also was some chatter, and you know better than me, but I was reading stuff about how the NIL, they feel like they didn't maximize it during the tournament run. That's a big thing now when you're hiring coaches. I, I mean, you'd be foolish if you're a head coach not to consider where are you at with facilities? Where are you at with NIL? What's your stance on all these topics? Because you need that going forward. So I think given what it is for Penn State, it's a decent hire. Their assistant, remind me his name again. Adam um, Fisher. Now the yeah. Temple. And middle of the day yesterday, it looked like it was not going that way. It sounded mm -hmm. like Fisher was going to stay at Penn State. And Fisher was a big part of that offense this year. He and Shrewsbury were the one-two punch of the offensive mind. Yeah, I think it's a good hire for Temple. I know Temple was... Jeff Goodman was destroying them for the hire last night. I saw, I think it's a fine hire. Adam Fisher's a guy who's clearly liked by a lot of players. He's a good offensive mind. I get, he's not thought of as a, he's not a Philly guy, right? There's something about you, yeah. you're a temple. You're supposed to hire a Philly guy. He's not that, but I think he's going to bring in good players and the players he does bring in. I think he's going to coach really well. I think it's a pretty solid hire for temple. Although I was, Kind of, I thought they were going to go Matt Langle from Colgate would have been my initial gut reaction there. Yeah. So Rodney Terry is now officially the head coach at Texas. I found it kind of weird to me that, and maybe this is sort of a hot take, I don't know, that everyone was sort of mad at CDC, Chris Del Conte, the athletic director at Texas for not already giving him that promotion when they're in the middle of a tournament run. I, I just didn't think the timing of it would make any sense. You want to do the press conference, all that. I don't know why there was sort of a portion of the fan base that was riled up, like what is taking so long? What is taking so long? I also just think if you're Texas, that's a huge job. And you need to, if you're the athletic director at Texas, make sure that some big name coaches aren't interested because as much respect as I have for Rodney Terry and what he did this season, it's one thing to do it inheriting the roster and just sort of yeah. pushing them forward. It's another thing to be the head man. And he has been a head coach at other places. UTEP, one of them did a decent job there in three years. I don't know. I'm, I'm not as much in on the Rodney Terry's a slam dunk as some of the other sort of college basketball writers and pundits are. I think Rodney Terry is a great coach as far as player development, and I think he's proven that he can be a great in-game coach as well. That's what they proved this year by winning too. as much as they, they did. That, that's very clear, yeah. And so. so the question is, how does he handle NIL, and how does he handle running a program? Because there are 
kind of a couple of different types of coaches out there. You have your your pure coaches, the guys who just want to be around. They want to be in the gym. They want to be developing players. They want to be the guys who are hands-on with that part of the program. Then there are the coaches who are, are program runners. They're shaking hands. They're getting donations. They're making yeah. sure they're on top of NIL. They're constantly on the road recruiting. And they're able to leave a lot of the program basketball development to their assistants. And I think you want to be careful if you're Texas about which guy you bring in there. And so I think that they wanted to truly see, can Rodney Terry handle both those sides of being a head coach? Can he be the guy who is on hands-on in practice as well as being hands-on with making sure their NIL situation is firm and making sure they have enough money for facility upgrades or making sure they can promise that next five-star recruit a uh, uh, relatively big paycheck because that's yeah. a big part of the current basketball landscape. And I think a big part of the coaching carousel as well, just can you find a coach who can handle both sides of that? Right. And before we get out of here, I want to talk about Caleb Love real quick. Sure. Yeah. I have to laugh a little bit and I actually don't think Caleb Love deserved as much hate as he got this year. And it's a very complicated legacy. He leaves at UNC, but now there's chatter about Kansas. There's chatter about Indiana, Arkansas, and a lot of people, national writers, analysts are saying, <clears throat> if you give Caleb Love the freedom and if you're Eric Musselman at Arkansas, I think it could work because he's so good at just letting his guards make mistakes and let them make plays. That's what UNC did. I, I really don't get why that narrative is going around because Hubert Davis played him and let him take all kinds of bad shots. And it did lead to the final four run a little bit. So I'll be fascinated. I think it's it's sort of just a bum thing that Caleb Love leaves UNC sort of hated. He, I believe, is like deleted his Twitter page because he's gotten a lot of just yeah. criticism. And, and that stinks as a college kid that you have to deal with all that stuff in today's day and age. But I don't know. I think if he goes somewhere and it's the right fit, he could be good. But I also don't get why people are saying they need to give him the freedom because he was given the freedom at UNC. And the right fit to me looks like like Miami this year on a team with other really good guards and shot creators, like a Baylor national championship team from a few years ago, where you have layers of really good guards who can all score it. He's a piece of that puzzle. He's not a headliner. Like that's yeah. what he tried to be this year at UNC and it did not work to me. He's a very good part of a boy band, but he's not the headline guy. Like that's to me where Caleb love can fit and still win and still be very good at a high level. It stinks that the transfer portal, some of these guys are becoming villains because they should just go where they, that's the whole point of it. They should be able to go where they're right. most comfortable. And if it's about going to get paid, go get paid, my friend. If it's about going somewhere better for you basketball wise, go do that. I just think people should have that freedom to go where they want to go. And he's choosing to do that. So it's too bad. He's getting a lot of hate. Yeah, I agree with you there. He needs a fresh start and I'm sure he'll get that wherever he goes. So that's kind of a quick synopsis of the transfer portal, the coaching carousel. We'll more to plenty, come. Yeah, we'll have plenty more time to talk about that once the tournament actually ends. But we're focused on the national championship game, the final four. We'll have another podcast for you probably before the national championship game. And then, of course, a reaction to that coming in your podcast feed soon. But thanks for listening to our final four primer today. For Brian McLaughlin, I am Tim Leonard, and we'll catch you next time on the Just College Hoops show.